And as long as one person's willing to take the risk, all people feel like they have to take the risk. If one software company is willing to take the supply chain risk and say, okay, I'll let that supply chain get away with something because it's going to be faster features, then everybody feels like they have to do the same because they don't want to fall behind. Because they fall behind, they won't be in business. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Welcome to the show, John Peronti. Now, today, I want to talk to you about ISACA's new supply chain report, which was recently released. Now, we will be linking the full version of the report in the show notes. If you want to look at that in more fidelity, by all means, please go ahead and do that. Uh, so don't forget to check that out on or after the interview. So, John, I want to get into some of the insights that were captured from the report. So thanks for joining today. Thank you, Carissa. Thank you for having me. So can you please walk through the top five supply chain risks and some of the insights about each of them, if that's possible? I'll do my best for you. So in the ISACA survey, what we found was really interesting to us. Um, The number one and, and the largest percentage of concern that we see out there is ransomware. So the concern that ransomware could affect us in our supply chain, either by causing uh, a ransomware attack or or action to happen through the use of software security or software that we're bringing into our environments, or our supply chain of third-party solutions of vendors, software as a service providers, key critical third parties that we're using for our key critical business processes fall victim to a ransomware conversation. So ransomware has been noted as a really you know, well-published, well-advertised conversation of concern for a number of years now, and we're only seeing it getting worse. It's not getting better. The adversaries have found a very interesting way to monetize their efforts very quickly and very easily. So it's advantageous for them to continue their efforts. And we're seeing organizations dealing with extreme recovery times and costs to deal with these incidents. So this is one of the things we saw as one of the number one things and and number one area that people wanted to explore in the survey was our ransomware as being a a big conversation. Now, the second thing that came up and that was very important to us was poor information security practices by suppliers. And that means that a lot of organizations have worked very hard in the last 10 years or so to really enhance their information risk and security practices and their programs and build out good capabilities. Uh, But they're questioning whether the vendors and suppliers that they're using have done the same. So we always say you're only as strong as your weakest link. And now that we live in a world of sourcing, where many organizations uh, source key activities and important business processes and important things to help their business be successful to suppliers or to third parties, now we have to be just as concerned about those third parties. You also see in the global regulatory landscape a, a requirement that the organizations that are the primary organizations are held, being more, held more accountable for the security of their suppliers and of the third parties they're working with. So there's a lot of concern saying, how much control uh, do I as a primary organization have over a third party, over my supply chain? To what degree can I influence them to do better practices? Can I influence them to do better things, to, to strengthen their practices to be as strong as my practices? So that's our number two. Our number three was software security vulnerabilities. You know, it's always fascinating to me as a risk and security professional, how as a user population, consumer population, wherever I go in the world, how we've accepted bad software as being okay. Um, The race for feature has overcome the need for good security for a really long time. 
So it, it's no you know, uh, secret that we have patches and updates and things from vendors on a regular basis. Microsoft's been having Patch Tuesday since 2004. It's 18 years that we've continually accepted poor quality of software with no consequence back to the vendor because of the drive for good and new features and capabilities and advancements. And it's always a balance. I'm not suggesting that we live in a world where we only release, release code in, after two or three years of development. Um, I don't think that's a sustainable practice. But I think that we are understanding that the overwhelming number of vulnerabilities that are coming through are really concerning. So how do we get our third-party development populations, how do we get our software supply chain vendors to do a better job of getting better, more secure code and better quality code delivered to us the first time and not through patching? So just the idea that we have vulnerabilities exist in code is one problem. But the other problem is the level of investment and effort it takes to remediate when those vulnerabilities come through. So if we think about things like Log4j, which was a well-known documented open source vulnerability uh, that happened in December of 2021, that really opened up a lot of people's concerns and revitalized this conversation saying, wow, we have these big issues and we may not have all the support and infrastructure and engines available to address them within our organizations when we become aware of them. And we may not even know where they are. We may not even know exactly how they're sitting. And we also become dependent upon our supply chain to fix them. So there are certain vendors in Log4j who waited six to eight to 10 weeks before they had viable patches in place. VMware is a great example of this. VMware has been noted as being the most highly attacked surface of Log4j so far in public studies and public activities and things like that. And they were the last to offer full full force, full patches that would really protect against the Log4j conversation. They offered workarounds, compensated controls, but Log4j was throughout the large majority of their product sets, a large majority of their capabilities. And myself as a primary organization, they were part of VMware is a key part of a lot of the supply chain that we use for, for software security. And we're put in a situation of helplessness. We're dependent upon waiting for the vendors to produce the updates, to produce the patches to effectively solve for this problem. And the adversaries don't wait. The adversaries are not going to wait for us in any way. The fourth area that we found in the study was third-party data storage. So again, this is back to that, that, that third-party use of vendors and supply chains and sourcing partners that are vital and important for our business success at this point, but understanding how they deal with our data. Um, so as I work with clients and I work with people all over the world, we often have to remind leadership teams and, and business process owners and data owners that no one's going to love your data as much as you love your data. No one's going to love your business as much as you love your business. So the idea that you will do everything you possibly can to ensure the integrity, the security, the availability of your data outages and loss of data and failures and things like that. So we worry a lot about, one, the disposition of the resiliency of those capabilities. And two, we also wonder, where are they storing it? How are they storing it? Do they have appropriate governance mechanisms, appropriate administrative and technical controls? Are they doing appropriate storage in a way that protects the data appropriately based on my expectations as the organization providing this to the third party of the supply chain? And the last area that we, we covered in the ISACA survey that I thought was very interesting that we call out very clearly is that third-party service providers or vendors have physical or virtual access to our information systems, software, code, or IP. So as we've seen now coming through in the public domain, we've seen attack concepts where adversaries no longer will attack the primary target point at the front door, the target point, but they'll go through the third-party vendor. 
So if I have a persistent connection through a third party into my operating environments as the primary vendor, as, as the primary company, and allowing them to have remote access into my systems and allowing them to integrate and do uh, customer support functions or data integrations or API functionality or data streaming, the adversary now seeks out these relationships. They seek out these conversations. They look into these areas and say, wow, that's very interesting. Maybe the primary or the data owner is, is very good and very strong and has great controls and does a really good risk and security program and does all the right things. But the same can't be said for all the third-party vendors, especially those who are maybe in startup mode or in high growth modes or areas where philosophy and attitude may be more of, let's get products and services out there. Let's build our customer base. Let's grow at all costs. And then we'll fix things later. Because if the product works, then we'll fix. So we see adversaries looking for those weakest link points. They look to the weakest link and weaken the supply chain and say, if I can leverage something that has access to the primary in a secured and trusted way, then that's just as good as getting to the primary directly myself. And those are really the top five things that we saw come out of our report from the Asaka point of view uh, that we saw in supply chain security gaps in 2022. Wow. Sounds like you you really know, know those top five, um, you know, off the back of your hand. So, yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, John, maybe just give top the, the top five just again, like what they were, like one to five, just super quickly, just so people have a summary of that. Absolutely, Kristen. So the first would be ransomware. The second would be poor information security practices by suppliers. The third would be software security vulnerabilities. The fourth would be third-party data storage. And the fifth would be third-party service providers or vendors with physical or virtual access to information systems, software, code, or IP. Thank you very much for um, sharing that again. So one of the things that you were taught, I mean, there's a lot of things that you you sort of covered there, but something that I was interested in understanding a little bit more, you're sort of saying in point number one, ransomware, you're like, it's getting worse. Why is it getting worse? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, in, in my work, and I, I've been in the information risk and security field for over 30 years now, um, what we have come to understand very clearly is the adversary has the advantage. The adversary community is typically one to two generations ahead of the defensive community or the protecting community in their capabilities, their tools, their concepts. Uh, and, and a theme I always like to look at when we look at this, uh, this problem is we say that in a security conversation, the adversary has to be right once. The defender has to be right all the time. So I can't just spend all my time in an organization trying to figure out how I'm going to protect against ransomware. I have to think about all the other adversaries and all the other ways they might want to come at me and what, all the other things they might want to do. And I have to look at my limited resource pools, my limited time, my tolerance of risk and disruption within my organization. The business goals of the organization must be served always. I have to think about all these considerations as a defender that the adversary is not burdened with. And ransomware is getting worse because of the fact that it's easily monetized. So we have things like digital currency. Digital currency makes it very hard, not impossible, but very hard to trace how money is being funded, how money is being moved around. Um, I think it's interesting that many people try to point ransomware being something that's only been around since 2013 or 14. But I can actually tell you that I've been dealing with ransom situations since the late 90s in financial institutions and other areas where typically we didn't have digital currency at the time, but we had wire transfers. And at least when we were using wire transfers to move the money around and try and you know pay ransoms and things like that, uh, we had some visibility and some ability to kind of capture the adversary or, or find them. With digital currency, that is much harder. Not impossible, 
it's been done. It's been done many times, but usually it has to be done with the, with the assistance of law enforcement, with the assistance of nation state uh, functionalities and capabilities. And from the adversary community, they look at this and say, look, there's a whole business model around this. You've seen that there are ransomware as a service services out there. We actually have multiple situations where we have novice level individuals being able to engage very advanced uh, capabilities of tools and things that can exploit zero day vulnerabilities and exploitable capabilities and make ransomware work in such a way that's highly effective. And they even have customer support infrastructure in place. So because of the fact that this is a mon- an easy to monetize conversation and there's a willingness to pay. You know, the one thing that we do know in the community, and it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow, is that if organizations continue to pay, then you're just incentivizing the adversary to continue to attack more. But how can I go to organizations and say, you should be the martyr. You should be the one that I stop. You should be the one I say, nope, I'm not going to pay. Shut down your business, send everybody home, file bankruptcy, just because you want to hold your guns and say, I'm not going to pay. We can't do that. We've seen that in critical infrastructure conversations. We've seen that in general business conversations. It's not as simple to say, I can't pay. And as long as the adversary makes it more convenient or makes the uh, business process model and the risk assessment model come through, then it's better for us to pay than to try and recover on our own to, to be able to get our business to where it needs to be to be viable. As long as that calculation works in their favor, we'll continue to pay. And as long as we continue to pay, we'll see more adversaries coming through. It's incentivized to do so. Yeah, that's interesting. So I was talking to someone literally yesterday and they're they're doing a case study on a company that had ransomware and then they said they engaged a firm, but then sort of the adversary that was asking for uh, for the ransom basically was cheaper than engaging the firm. So they ended up paying the ransom. My sort of counterpoint with that is like, yeah, but there's no guarantee you're going to get everything back. Well, they did apparently. So then how does that then work? I know we're going slightly off tangent, but I think this is important because that's a, you know, if you look at pure maths, like it makes sense, like, because if you're getting some, you know, third party and they're more expensive and all this, like to a a customer perspective, like, okay, we may not get it back, but let's just run the risk. Let's just pay the ransom. It's going to be cheaper than engaging these security guys anyway. uh, And we can just get back to business. So talk to me a little bit more about that. It's it's a great conversation, Chris, and that is part of. I, I've been involved in many ransom uh, incidents, unfortunately, um, for many years, and, and my team and I have worked on many situations. And often, that's the conversation you have to have: cost benefit analysis. What is the way to get to your recovery time and your recovery point objectives? And if you have to bring in a team of highly sophisticated and capable uh, consultants and capabilities that are going to disrupt your business, not just uh, from a cost perspective, but also a total cost of ownership, a total cost of disruption, um, it may be more effective to say, I will pay. Now, to your point that there are no guarantees that if you pay, that you're going to either have a, be given encryption keys to decipher the data or get your data back if there was an exfiltration or stop of extortion. But the one thing we've seen is if you get a ransomware group that does not give your data back or does not give you an encryption key back or give you a, a decipher tool or things like that, um, they also know from a customer service perspective and a marketing perspective, the minute they don't give it back to you, that's going to get out pretty fast in the community. So we've had groups like this. We know of groups like this. And we'll often recommend the clients saying, you know, the opportunity for them to actually, or likelihood of them actually giving you back the data if you pay them is so low that you shouldn't engage with them. Don't even bother. And in some, in more cases though, you say, yes, we've had, you know, consistently seen this group has revealed the data, has been helpful. In fact, some of the groups are even getting more interesting now saying, look, not only are we going to give you the data back or the encryption, the deciphering keys and the encryption keys to decipher it was an encryption attack. We're actually going to tell you how we got in now. 
we're actually going to try and protect you in the future so our peers don't come after you again. What? <laughs> yep. So it's honor amongst thieves. So it's more of a selling point. They're selling that saying, look, you're going to spend a lot of money after we leave trying to figure out how we got in. So let us cut that cost for you as well. Let's take that cost out of the equation. We're going to tell you how we got in and we're going to tell you how to fix it. So we're going to be a better value add if you pay us. Well, who, which side of the fence are they sitting on? Like, cause it seems like, okay, like, yeah, we'll, we'll get in and then we're going to help you sort of tell you how we got in. Like, don't, that seems bizarre. Well, it's just another incentive to pay because in many ransomware incidents, you don't recover your initial recovery still, you might recover vulnerable. So for instance, using backups is not always a great answer because you might be recovering a vulnerable system that's still vulnerable. And what the adversary sells the argument is, is saying, well, we're going to make sure our competitors can't attack you. We're going to actually give you insights that are going to cost you a lot of money to hire consultants and go do a, a chase down. It takes a long time to find a lot of these core vulnerabilities. They're not always as obvious as someone would like. Um, we do investigations that take months and months. Uh, the average recovery costs right now are over $4 million US for mid and large enterprises. Um, and most of those dollars are spent for consulting dollars. Most of those dollars are not spent for uh, business interruption. It's more around how do I go after and find uh, for the fees recover. And then they also have to deal with business, business interruption as well, saying every hour I'm without my data is costing me X amount of dollars. What does that mean? So the adversaries are getting smarter about marketing. In their messaging, they're no longer just trying to use fear. They're trying to engage and say, look, look at this as a proof of concept. You had a bad situation, but we're at least going to make sure that you going forward are stronger. I know this will sound like a bad question, but if, oh gosh, it goes against my security bones. But do you think it's like maybe like kind of worth it? Now, I ask this not because of like fueling the, the adversaries, but more so, like you said, some of these things could take four to six months to recover and lots and lots of money. But if they know straight away, don't you think that's like kind of helpful and advantageous then? I have, I do that analysis. It's one of the first things we do when I walk into a situation um, because you have to take emotion out of the equation. One of the first things you have to do is you have to understand that ransomware is an attack on the ethics, morals, and values of an organization and the leadership of the organizations. It's not an attack on the technology. The technology is the easiest part of the equation. It's somebody coming in and saying, I'm going to make you helpless. And I'm going to force you to do something that you shouldn't want to do, that you don't want to do. And that emotion is really difficult to work its way through. So myself and my teams and my peers and the people who work for me and things like this, and we look at this and we come in a non-emotional, do a cost-benefit analysis very quickly. Very quickly have to get our arms around saying, what is your viability for recovery? What is your timeline for recovery? What is your ability to sustain future attacks? Uh, we do know in the ransomware population of attackers that one attacker may not, you may pay one attacker and they may come back and say, okay, thank you. Here's your encryption key or decipher key or here's some uh, tool or something that gets you back into operation. But then they, they'll tell you they will not attack you again, but they'll sell the intelligence in the underground to others to say, Hey, look, these guys paid X amount of money. I use this kind of attack. I use these kind of tools for a fee. So they'll sell intelligence in the underground and they're still holding the word that they will not attack you again, but they'll get a second monetary gain by selling all that insight to somebody else who can then just attack you right away all over again. Because unfortunately, in any cyber warfare scenario, the best time to attack somebody is when they're weak, not when they're strong. So there's a lot of value to having that data immediate in place. So I'm not here to say or advocate paying is the right answer. But I always say to my clients, we have to get beyond the emotions of saying there's no way we're going to pay. And we have to get beyond the political rhetoric that says we shouldn't pay. 
even in the United States, where we have what's called the OFAC rules and we have strong uh, expectations from our leadership and by uh, um, the Department of Homeland Security and um, the national security agencies and different things saying, don't pay, don't pay, call us first, don't pay. Even then, there are times where they have allowed payments to be made. Even then, they have suggested that they will facilitate payments because it's in the greater interest of the greater good. Wow, that 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 is a whole episode <laughs> on its own about the ethics and oh wow, that that's wild. Okay, so let's switch gears for a second. Uh, the other insight that was mentioned in the report as well is that thirty percent of respondents believed their organization did not have sufficient understanding of supply chain risk. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this one. Yeah. So what we have seen is that many people have tried to get their arms around third parties and what they're doing in third party risk and supply chain risk, mostly through, let me send a questionnaire and hope they respond well, or having some idea of a, a one and done audit done once a year. And when I get these you know, ISO certifications or I get SOC 2s or I get these wonderful things, which are all good things, but we all know, and myself being an auditor, I know this, that when I go to audit environment, Chances are they cleaned up their mess before I got there. Everything's pretty shiny the couple of days I'm there. Everything looks better than it probably does the rest of the time, the rest of the year, and isn't consistent. So what we've learned is that as much as we might have some degree of comfort that we've got these questionnaires back, they've responded properly, they're saying they're doing all the right things, there's no assurance. There's very often not enough capacity to go and do artifact-based or evidence-based reviews. There's not enough capacity, especially in larger organizations that are dealing with thousands of suppliers, to realistically say that they can have strong relationships with all their suppliers, have an ongoing diet and success rate by 80% or less. But people don't do it. But in the reports, you get there's policies and standards that say we patch frequently, we do this, we do that. And then there's always those exceptions. Well, there's those systems over there, though, we haven't patched in five years because we're afraid of them or because we can't bring them down for some reason or something like that. So what we find is, in, in my premise in security that I've thought for many, many years, is you can't protect what you don't know. And there's a real fear that says, I may have a good monitoring and oversight over my own environments and my own information infrastructure and the understanding of my own operating environment. But when I extend it out to that third party, I have very little. And nor should I really expect to be able to have much more because the reason I'm going to them is saying, I'm using your services so I don't have to invest in myself. Now, I have an expectation of security. I have an expectation of good information, risk, and security capabilities and management processes and things like that. But whether or not they're actually invested in appropriately is always questionable. And it's been proven so many times when you get in these data breaches and you get in these problems with these supply chains and things like that, where they claim to have all these great things in place. And then in retrospect, it turns out, well, we weren't as good as we might have thought. Maybe we were overzealous in our response. Maybe we thought we were better off than we were. Because security is a constant moving target. You can't stop. It's constantly evolving. You know, that was what make, makes this interesting for me in my profession. I've always said, so I love what I do because every time I come up with something, the adversary is coming up with a way to get around it. So it's constantly challenging me to be, back, to be better. It's constantly making me improve. And that's something that we're, we're seeing is not holding true in a lot of organizations. You're saying, I can only spend so much. I can only invest so much uh, in these, especially supply chain players. So we're kind of in this mode of saying, well, geez, how do we go after this then? How do we get comfort around this? And we're getting less and less comfort that the idea of just a questionnaire is answering the question appropriately. It definitely helps from a legal perspective, but it doesn't necessarily help us from an operational perspective if there's a failure. You made a comment before around we may be afraid of them, these other systems. What, uh, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? I'm just curious to know. 
Well, we, we, we almost don't want to know because once you know something, you move from, uh, to liability. So I, I'd rather be, you know, <laughs> do I want to be negligent or do I want to be, you know, ignorant? And that's the question I look at this because I can fight the argument that says, look, I wasn't aware that my supply chain vendor, supplier, whatever's going on had these efficiencies. I wasn't aware of that. Then I can't be accountable to ensure they're correcting them. If I do become too knowledgeable. Isn't that counterintuitive though? Isn't that what people, what people are there to do in an organization? Like I understand like we don't really want to address it, but like that's part of people's jobs. I agree with you hundred percent, Krista, but what's the risk tolerance of the organization? And back to my statement I said to you earlier, uh, we are we are a population globally, not just you know any one country. I've done plenty of work where you are in Australia in my life. I've done plenty of work elsewhere where we are so feature driven as organizations to push code out faster that we don't take the time to look at security appropriately. We may think we're getting closer, but we're really not. I mean, look at the trend we're moving to this constant deployment model, CI/CD deployment, where people are writing code in the morning and publishing it at night. You cannot tell me that we can do appropriate full regression testing, appropriate security testing, appropriate security analysis in those models. It can't be done, in my, in my view, in my opinion, and not in our current state of maturity and our tooling and our capabilities to do full scope testing of implications of deployed code and what it means to other dependent code and things like that. So as long as we live in that conversation, we also then have to manage our risk appropriately. And if we get in the model of having too much understanding of our third parties, then we have to put a lot of governance and cost into that governance of those third parties, which the business may push back and say, now you've hindered our ability to produce. And as long as one person's willing to take the risk, all people feel like they have to take the risk. If one software company is willing to take the supply chain risk and say, okay, I'll let that supply chain get away with something because it's getting me faster features, then everybody feels like they have to do the same because they don't want to fall behind. Because they fall behind, they won't be in business. Yeah, good point. So I guess that leads me sort of to my next question about governance. Now, one of the other uh, insight from the report, which was actually quite high, which was 84% indicate that their organization's supply chain needs better governance than what's currently in place. So I'm, I'm curious to know what does that then mean um, and why is that so high, that number? Yeah, because back to the point of we have a good feeling in many organizations that we understand our own worlds, but we only have limited visibility into our third parties. And there's very little consequence management that we apply to our third parties. So one example would be, you know, if we, if we find out that one of our third parties is, is failing in some area, and it often happens, we send an auditor in, they do a good comprehensive review, um, we come up with corrective action plans. And let's say those corrective action plans have a timeline. When those timelines start slipping, that becomes the interesting question. What is the consequence management? Are there really downsides? I cannot tell you how often I see organizations take a strong stance in their policies and their standards and their work practice saying that if a third-party vendor falls out of our expected security practices, if they do not track appropriately with the corrective action plans, if they do not uh, remediate things faster and strengthen their environment, we'll stop using them. That's very easy for an auditor or a security professional to say, but often they're not the ones writing the checks. They're not the ones who are the decision makers to make that decision. Because when you look at a key business process or a key vendor or providing a key business process and you don't have an alternative option to go elsewhere or your alternative option is going to increase your costs, which reduces your margin on your product, that's a hard pill to swallow as the business process owner to say, nope, I'm going to hold my guns and I'm going to stop it. Usually what you see happening is saying, okay, let's extend it. Let's keep kicking the can. Let's keep giving them more time. As long as they're showing they're trying to get better, 
then that's okay. And what happens in the psychology is that organizations start aligning that saying, okay, I know that they wrote me this big letter and this big note saying I need to do all these things and they found all these findings and I'm going to monitor me and check on me. But in reality, all I need to do is keep showing a certain level of progress and they'll keep extending. So what organizations tend to do is they tend to align to that minimum level of what they have to do to, to uh, pass the ability to keep staying with it with the, with the primary vendor or with their customer versus completely fixing everything in the short order which was originally promised. And that's where that governance starts coming in. It's not just governance. It's also open communication. Uh, what I often suggest to the CISOs I work with and the business leaders I work with, I say, instead of treating these third-party reviews as us against them, and as a, a kind of a, an audit or something like that, let's have more of an open dialogue and realize that we all have problems. We all have challenges. But let's make sure that we have back-channel capabilities. Let's make sure that we have some agreed-upon structures and frameworks that we can agree are good practices. Let's make sure that we are on the same page in what we think security is in more of an open dialogue conversation versus me as a large organization telling a small organization that you must do this. Because as a human, if you don't see value in doing something, you're likely not to do it. If somebody tells you to do something uh, and you don't see value in it, you're going to do the bare minimum. You'll do what you have to do, but you're not going to embrace it. That point of holding it and loving it and caring for it as the primary would. Do you think as well, John, so if you're a third party you know, supplier for, for an organization, they have to do these long documents and it's like 3,000 questions. Do you think that that then does become counterintuitive? It's like that's a, it's a long process. People can be bothered doing it and then no one's sort of governing it effectively because it's just too long and they got like 400 suppliers to look across. Do you think there's a bit of that in there as well? I think it is. I, I think it was um, – uh, I like to look at almost like we call it the No Child Left Behind Act in, in the United States. Had all the right intentions and is starting to have the wrong outcomes. So you had all these requirements that you had that education systems had to in the United States start lining up to. And what you started seeing is everybody started only teaching to the test. And they weren't looking at all the changes in culture, the changes in behaviors, the changes in student needs and things like that. And they were just driving to say, I have to be able to pass this test. So these questionnaires kind of create the same conversation. The questionnaires are typically aged. They're typically not, they're handling all things we know we should do, but aren't necessarily handling all the new things that we need to do. And the questionnaires are being responded to. The same questions are being asked a thousand times by a thousand different vendors. You get fatigue on the responder side. At some point, their answers become somewhat canned. And they're often not supported with any sort of verify. So I'm a big believer in the principle of trust, but verify. So the trust is the answer of the question. But I want an artifact. I want evidence-supported reviews. And I, so few times do we see organizations thoughtfully do broad-spectrum evidence-reviewed uh, questionnaires. They might request the evidence, but actually somebody who understands the business processes, understands the model reviewing them, doesn't often show up. I find it fascinating that we're trying to hire third-party service providers to do a lot of these tools now for these questions and these ideas and these reviews. And what they don't have, though, is the benefit of what's my business process? What are my tolerances? What's my risk profile in this organization? These third parties will never understand my business processes by design. They're just going to look at industry standards and say, you should do these things. And let's see how well you're doing them. Yeah. So, okay. At a high level, you've got a supplier and then, I don't know, once per annum, you've got to get the 400 page document out to your 400 suppliers. And then your governance person is making sure that all the 400 suppliers are getting those documents back. And then do you think that once they get them back, is that 
the end of it? Like, do you think that people do go through meticulously to be like, actually, question 378, I'm not really keen on that answer and you haven't pr- provided me with the evidence that I'd like. Do you think people are going through it so, like, meticulously or do you think it's like, cool, I've got the documents, that's it, you know, wherever they get stored and then just wait for the next year's sort of uh, audit? That's a great question. Unfortunately, in my opinion, it's going towards the, the latter. It's going more towards the, let me try and apply some automatic scoring mechanism because I have 400 of these things and I have the capacity to maybe look at 20. I have the capacity to maybe look at 50 in, in detail over the course of any meaningful period. So I'll try and use a scoring algorithm that will, will try and give me, using psychological means, using asking the same question six different ways, things like that, to try and highlight areas of concern. Um, and the, the, the way that I'm working with clients to work on this and the way that Isaka thinks about this is follow a risk-based approach. You shouldn't send the 400 questions to everybody. You know, sometimes you just do. Some organizations say, look, I just want to baseline everybody the same way so I can create these great repositories, create some, uh, some sort of artificial intelligence or algorithm, machine learning, algorithm modeling to try and you know, interpret question answers and figure out where should I spend more time? Because it's just unsustainable to do as these 400 as you properly have highlighted and said for the staff levels we're really able to apply to it. So I'm not saying these are bad ideas. I, I actually endorse the use of these concepts. I endorse the idea of using questionnaires and interview models and things like that and attestations. I believe you have to follow a risk-based approach against it, though, because you're never going to cover all of your population. You have to let the business take risk. That's why businesses are in business, to take risks. Without risk, you don't get reward. True. So do you think – so just going back on the third-party – uh, you know, vendors that manage this for suppliers, do you think that could potentially be a controller for like a first pass? So it's like, all right, we've got 400, let's just do a baseline. Okay. I don't know, 350 of those went through to the next round, which then sort of gets like worked up into the company for someone to like maybe go through it with a fine tooth comb. And then those other 50, like they're out. Do you think that that potentially isn't the be all end all silver bullet, but maybe it just might help with the processing of 400 suppliers, for example? Yep. So we've seen people try that approach. I have clients who do that approach already. We see this kind of concept or random sampling, saying that we'll randomize a sample model and say we'll, we'll take a, almost like a, a tax audit scenario where there's you know, some, some indicator popped up to some threshold that says this, this one pops up to see more detail needs to be found. Uh, but the question is going to be is uh, at what level is everything important? If you're starting to talk about sensitive data, uh, personal health details, card information, account details, and you're dealing in that kind of industry, everybody's got the same type of data. You can't necessarily find your way through and say, well, the, the vendors, you know, only 350 of them, uh, 350 are not important, 50 are. In those cases, it's usually there's 50 that are important and there's 350 that are because of the industry you're in. So I don't think there's any one approach to this. I, I truly advocate back to that risk-based modeling. And you try to understand through behaviors and interactions with the vendor beyond the questionnaires, what's your relationship with them like? How open are they to working with you? You know, more than the questionnaires, for me, for my key vendors, for the, the customers I work with, the CISOs I work with, I, I've built risk and security programs all over the world for many, many years. I always say the most important thing I have is my relationship, not the questionnaire. So let me go and have an open dialogue with the CISOs of the other organizations and my key vendor suppliers, and let me give them some degree of amnesty and say, look, we have to be honest with each other. We have to understand what's working and what's not working for your environment, with my environment, to share information, but to do so without the fear of retribution. So there has to be some back channel. There has to be some dialogue that says, look, let me know where you're weak. 
So at least me as a primary, I can take some defensive actions to try and compensate of where you're weak. And let's just be honest with each other. I'm not going to stop doing business with you. I'm not going to stop put, put, put fines in place or put in negative consequences as long as you're honest with me so I can realistically help myself to protect myself in a better way. So what happens if someone's not honest though? Well, it happens. We've seen this a lot. We see a lot of people who get ISO 27001 certifications. They get uh, SOC 2 certifications. And the, the certifications sometimes are only as good as the paper they're written on. Because the, the party that's certifying them indemnifies themselves out saying, you know, this is based on opinion, uh, point in time, and uh, we, we're not going to be held liable for them. The organization cleaned up their messes and shows things worked and scoped these things in certain ways. And we, we use scoping and auditing for years and years and years to navigate these things. So then you go back and say, well, uh, I got the certification and that didn't work. I still got to go in and do the work. So you, th- that's what comes back to the idea of these questionnaires and the certifications, why they have value. There's no question that they at least set expectations and let people know that we are going to be asked, that there is going to be pressure, and there is going to be increasingly more pressure as we adjust these things, as we adjust to the new threat landscapes, as we adjust the adversary concepts and attack principles and things like that. We have to strengthen those things. Um, but there is always going to be that possibility that someone's not either going to be honest with us or they're just not going to understand their deficiencies. They're not going to realize the risk was as big as it is. Uh, I see this a lot in sensitive data environments, especially with health records and health details and things like this and with analytics companies right now, where the argument is so skewed on the idea of we need to lose this data without security controls to be able to innovate, to be able to create new medical capabilities, to be able to be more efficient. And you look at organizations who look at these things saying, look, cost-benefit analysis for me is I'll, I'll follow what I believe is the uh, requirements of the regulatory agencies or of my clients, but I'll interpret that in a way that I'll be okay with not doing everything because I want my business to be successful. I want more margin. And the probability of me having a problem in their minds is often very, fairly low because they don't do appropriate threat and analysis. A lot of the people who are making those risk-based decisions are not risk and security professionals. They're business process owners who are looking to saying, look, I need to make more money. I need to drive more revenue. I need to drive more capability. I need to drive more feature. Um, and I may not know all the details of how bad guys are doing bad things or how prolific they are. And I've never seen it myself. I've never experienced it myself. So they're going to go after somebody else. I'm going to roll those dice because I'd rather be in business and make more money and then pay the consequences if I, something happens versus not take the risk and not get the benefit. Yeah, gosh, it's it's an interesting one, I think, because I do hear both sides of the story. Uh, so I guess that on its own is another podcast episode to explore. I would be welcome to have those conversations with you, Chris. Yeah, it's just, it just oh, I could go on for ages going down these rabbit holes. So, okay, I want to stay on, you know, on, on point. Now, you made a statement in the report, and the statement that you made is managing supply chain security risk requires a multi-pronged approach entailing regular cybersecurity and privacy assessments and the development and coordination of incident response plans, both in close collaboration with suppliers. What do you mean by that statement? Sounds really good, right? I may feel like it was an A. Set up very well. So honestly, at the end of the day, the core thing I want you to understand from that statement is the collaboration. It says that we need to together work as partners. We need to not just be a, a customer and vendor relationship. We need to be a partner relationship because we're in this together. The minute that I send my data to a third party, they're really working on my behalf. They're important to me. I need to work with them to develop ideas of how do we proactively 
understand how do we address issues and how do we find issues and how do we understand in a risk-based model looking for what we're doing. But then I also need to ensure that I have agreed upon incident response concepts, agreed upon business resiliency, resiliency planning models, information sharing concepts, a way of ensuring that I have a regular dialogue so that my third parties understand my expectations and are able to meet those expectations. They're testing those muscles. They're flexing those capabilities. They're running tabletop exercises. They're running scenario-based models. And we're doing this with each other. We're collaboratively working together. Because the idea of just throwing the questionnaire over the fence and expecting them to be really embracing my response and really wanting to work with us and really want to collaborate to do things better, that alone is a failure by just using the questionnaire model, in my opinion. So by having those ongoing reviews... By doing this not as a one and done once a year or once every other year type model, by checking in and having you know, information sharing, bring them into your uh, represent, representatives from third party into your own security meetings in your strategy sessions, help, help them understand what your risk profile is, what's important to you. Now they're embracing it. Now they're actually, you're playing the psychology more than anything else. You're not playing the technical talent. You're trying to get, capture the hearts and minds. And you're trying to have them to be as invested in doing things well as you are for your data and for your systems. So that's why I say relationship is the key part of that conversation and ongoing communication. I need to be able to pick up the phone some nights and have a back channel conversation with the CISO of somebody who I know is under duress and say, okay, tell me what's really going on. Don't tell me what the lawyers are saying. Don't tell me what the PR firm is telling you to say. What do we need to do? What's really going on? How should I be thinking about this? Yeah, that's a good point. So if if you're a vendor and you are working with an organization, wouldn't you think that they would want to show their face in the organization? Like, hey, here's John, like clockwork, every every quarter he's showing up with, I don't know, what do you guys have in the US, like coffee and bagels or I don't know, whatever it is. And don't you think people would want to do that? Because even if you look at pure, you know, purely selfishly, it's like, cool, we're willing then to give you the supplier more money potentially because you are showing up. It looks like you're caring because you're here. So don't you think that's sort of like maybe an obvious thought perhaps? I know that sounds silly, but I'm just genuinely curious. That's what I would do if you know I'm working with a large organization. They're probably paying a lot of money to some of these suppliers. Wouldn't you want to be there as much as you can be? Collaboration is something that you would hope that you'd want to foster, but there's also handcuffs put on some of these situations. You know, so if I am a supplier and I'm showing up to that quarterly, you know, kind of session and those roundtables and having open dialogue, uh, there's certain things that I'm going to be restricted from saying. My leadership team is not going to just let me open the kimono and say, oh yeah, by the way, we've got a whole bunch of bugs in our code right now that hasn't been addressed uh, and we're not sure what we're going to do about it. And nor do we have the, uh, the backlog capability to do it right now. It's not something we can address. We know how to address and it's going to live there for a while. They, the security team might be handcuffed from being able to say some of those things. Even knowing you want them to say those things and they want to say those things. That's why I, I like to have those private dialogues sometimes as well. You, you would hope that the supplier wants to be part of that conversation. But at the same time, um, being part of the conversation and actually taking actions and being accountable for your actions is a different problem. Because they may not have the authority to do that. They can take the information back but they're basically giving information to decision makers to make informed decisions based on that communication. So while I, I, I do embrace it and I do support it and I do advocate and I do tell people to set up these roundtables, have these forums, I think they're more effective when they, do, when they are held. They also have to be understood that there are limitations to them as well. 
That's why we had to have that assurance concept, that trust but verify. Even with my best friends at my the third parties I work with, I still tell them, you know, when it comes down to it, I still want to see the evidence. I know you're telling me, I know we're having a great beverage, I know we're having a nice sandwich together, but I still want to see the evidence of what you're doing too. You show up to all the meetings and I love you for it and it's great and you collaborate, but prove to me. Give me the verify. Give me the, you know, I trust, but I want the verify. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, yeah, I think that's a fair, fair way of looking at it. Uh, I think it's just, again, it just requires more work on the supplier vendor end, I guess. So, look, I think you've shared some amazing points. I think that these are, these are things that people could implement straight away as well. But then I'd like to just maybe get your thoughts on, you know, you've sort of, as the interview's gone on, you know, we've spoken about that there is a fair bit of dislodgement that's happening. Uh, there is a, still a lot of work. We're not quite there yet. So then what do you believe will happen if we don't all start pulling together as a group to address a lot of these supply chain issues? Because what we've seen the last few years is crazy. And, you know, you, you made a comment earlier in the interview that saying like, you know, we're, it's getting, we're getting more separated now. So what are your thoughts like for the future? What's going to be on the horizon? Well, in my opinion, you can't expect different outcomes if you don't change. If we follow the same path and we become more desensitized to these situations. And I always fear the desensitization when we start doing a lot of public disclosure of things. And um, global media has has sometimes an impact of overstating certain things that maybe aren't as uh, bad. Socialization to gain more viewership in what they're doing. And I understand why they need to do that. But um, it, it, we can't get to a point where we turn security into something that says that we feel like we're never going to win. So why should we try? We have to be very careful to strike that balance. But I do know that the adversary will always have the advantage because like I said earlier, they only have to be right once. The defenders expect to be right all the time. It has to, to account for all those business goals, all those regulatory handcuffs, all those legal requirements, all those expectations of the business. And as long as we can appreciate that, that the adversary is going to have that advantage, I think then we can start looking at logical ways to disadvantage them to make it at least more uncomfortable for them to do the actions they're doing or make it harder for them. Um, I've often advocated for the idea that I don't need to be perfect. I just need to be better. I need to constantly be better. So the minute that we stagnate, and I believe that we're trying very hard not to be stagnant, especially in supply chain right now, uh, but we've already seen some of that sensationalization that came out of the solar winds attack and some of the other high-profile attacks uh, two years ago have fallen off where supply chain has been bucketed into a whole bunch of other problems. So ransomware is still top of mind because we see so many attacks over and over and over again. And also the insurance industry has kept ransomware as a top of mind issue because they're no longer paying out cyber policies and cyber claims around ransomware in a lot of cases. So that's forcing organizations to take action saying that that vehicle of support or control is not going to work anymore. Well, we'll move beyond ransomware at some point. I'm sure it's going to be part of my, my career for the rest of my career in some way, shape, or form. But data exfiltration is now still back in fashion. Data breach is back in fashion again. Uh, the ability to cause disruption of integrity tax is showing up again more and more. Extortion of individuals with personal health details is showing up more and more. So we have to constantly be looking at those trends and understanding where is the adversary likely to go? What is the likely path that they want to follow? And what are the corrective measures that we should be taking to try and shift what we're doing? Because what we're doing is obviously catching up, not getting ahead. Um, and I don't think that lies in this dream of automation through artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, because I often like to joke with friends and say, look, I, I still believe that the human is still 50% smarter than the computer. 
because the human knows maybe. The computer only knows yes or no. And every AI algorithm I've seen so far and every ML algorithm I've seen so far, you can prove how to game it. Once you understand cause and effect, you understand how the algorithm reacts to a certain data point, you can navigate the algorithm. And the other point I always use is I use the reference to a great movie that I love very much. I often say, look, the matrix hasn't shown up yet. So I still have a little bit of an advantage when it comes to this. But as soon as it does, I'm going to be there to serve it. I'm going to be there to help it. Humans, go away. I'm going to be right there to help it. But until then, I got to trust that human. I got to trust that intuition. I've got to forward the conversation in such a way that says, if we keep trying to accelerate feature push, if we try to go to these CICD models, yes, they're wonderful. Yes, I believe in them. Yes, they're great for forwarding innovation faster, but at what cost? And if we're not willing to take a step back and take a little bit less of innovation at the speed of business and slow it down to some degree as a population, then we have to be accepting that these considerations will be part of our reality. Um, and I find one last point for you, Chris. I find it interesting as I'm starting to trace through the younger population. I have uh, a, a tween children, twins and such. Their values, ethics, morals, and thinking about privacy and thinking about data and thinking about how systems work is a lot different than the business leaders I work with who are maybe on the more mature side. And people like myself who are vectoring in that direction now where we've been doing this a long time and our values are sensed around we have to do better at this because we want to protect data, we want to protect privacy, we want to protect our, these things. The ethics and values of the younger population may shift our thinking on how much security really means. And if we can devalue the value of that data in the marketplace, then the adversary is likely to move on to something else where they do see value, where we do continue to see value. I think you've given me and our listeners a lot of things to think about. Very insightful. Uh, and you look at things a different way, which I like. And actually, you know, some of those questions that I asked you, I think weren't what typically people ask. So I wanted to explore them and hear your thoughts. So I think we'll end it there. Really appreciate your time. We Just another note as well, we will be linking the full report in the show notes. So check that out. And John, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.